Good afternoon. Last I saw Devin, he was meeting with the staff and they looked like they had no intention of letting him go anywhere. So he probably won't be joining us for the talk this afternoon. Tonight's, uh, this afternoon's conditioning. <laughs> this afternoon's talk is titled uh, Four Faces of Compassion. Mary, Tara, Kuan Yin, and Tinkerbell. So compassion fits in the Eightfold Path under skillful thought or skillful intention. Greg mentioned the other day that there's a wisdom section of the Eightfold Path, and it has two components, um, wise view or understanding and wise thought or intention. So under uh, wise intention, there are three skillful intentions the intention of renunciation, or um, I'll call it simplicity, letting go, the skillful intention of non-ill will, which means metta. But as we mentioned, uh, somebody mentioned, probably Greg, sometimes uh, in, in, in Pali translations are expressing um, these qualities, they express them as the absence of. So the absence of ill will is metta. And the third skillful intention is non-cruelty or compassion. So we'll be talking mostly about compassion this afternoon. As you've probably noticed by now, and as was in the retreat description, I think I'm going to have to read the description at the opening night of every retreat I teach. It's really, really quite handy. Um, the theme of the retreat, a lot of it is about bringing a, a kind and compassionate awareness to our experience, whatever it is, whatever is arising. So I want to look at this word, compassion, compassionate awareness and um, orienting towards compassion in our Vipassana practice as well as in our formal Brahma Vihara practice. And I want to explore compassion more deeply. What is compassion? I used to think I knew what compassion was. But I find that the more I explore it experientially, intellectually, emotionally, um, in my body, the deeper I find it to be and the more breadth it seems to have. We heard the other night after the meditation that compassion encompasses connection, tenderness, care, and a softening in relationship to suffering. So we'll be exploring all these qualities in more detail. As we open to life as it is, to reality and all of its wildness, we discover joy, beauty, enchantment, as well as sorrow, 
lamentation and despair, as the Buddha often stated. So to be able to be in touch with reality, with truth, we must be able to hold all of this, the wide variety of human experiences. Well-developed compassion gives us the strength to be able to do that. Compassion is strong in its softness. So we often think of something hard as strong, but things that are hard can be brittle and they can shatter easily. The ice mountains, the hard ice mountains in our hearts, <laughs> are, um, they don't allow for flexibility. They don't allow for bending. As we soften the places that are hard within, we gain a kind of strength that has flexibility and the capacity to bend and to accommodate this kind of compassion and this kind of relationship to reality is alive and it's breathing. Personally, I don't know how we can touch deeply the truth or reality without metta or compassion. I know that at periods in my practice, I have had to focus on these qualities for a couple of reasons. One, to strengthen the heart, to strengthen the mind in a soft kind of way. The other is um, to make the world a friendly enough place that risking, relaxing into reality seems like a possibility. So for many of us, we have a default view of the world as a fearful place and perhaps not a safe place. It may be an unconscious belief, it might be a conscious belief, but if that's how we see reality, relaxing into it isn't going to look like a very good idea. (laughs) We're going to recoil. We're going to want to stay more on the surface, more in the safety of the thoughts in our minds, in our conceptual world. But the more that you could say reality, see, it's not reality that has an intrinsic quality here. It's our own heart and mind. If our own heart and mind has a default of metta and compassion, reality will feel friendly. We don't have to talk about, we don't have to, somebody, somebody once asked Albert Einstein um, if he could have the answer to one question, what would it be? And his question was, is the universe friendly? And I would say that the answer to that question is subjective. What we do with the cultivation of metta and compassion is we make the world a friendly place. And that's a place where we feel safe to to relax. 
and to go deeply into insight and understanding the way things are. Mark Nepo, a modern mystic, says that with compassion our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. And I really like that. A soft and sturdy home in which real things can land, in which reality can land. And for me, this exploration of compassion happens on all levels of our being. There's the the intellectual understanding, there's the emotional understanding, and there's the physical experience of, down to the level of the cells, absorbing metta and compassion and understanding what that feels like. So sometimes they say we marinate in metta, we marinate in compassion, soak in it, letting ourselves know it fully. So that's a lot about what this talk is about, how to receive and feel different aspects of compassion within ourselves. And as we deepen that capacity, we then strengthen our ability to manifest it outwards with others. And to be, you could say, a beacon for softness and kindness in this world. Also know that it's okay to not know what compassion is, to explore it, to be curious about it. And it's also okay if in our exploration we come across what are known as the near neighbors or the qualities that may feel a little bit like compassion but aren't quite it, which are pity, for example, or um, despair, overwhelm. In learning more about compassion, exploring um, all of our reactions to suffering is um, the occupational hazard that, we, that we're willing to accept. So let us start with Mary. The four faces. So I've, I've, I've found myself... Um, receiving four different ways of, of experiencing compassion and understand it, the four ways that I'm calling Mary, Tara, Kuan Yin, and Tinkerbell. So these are, you could say, archetypes, certain kinds of energy. And uh, I'm going to talk about my subjective experience of them. It may not be other people's subjective experience of them. It may not be how they are traditionally seen, doesn't matter. I've gotten a little bit of feedback about certain aspects of Tinkerbell that I wasn't really familiar with (laughs) before. (laughs) So I have my own experience of Tinkerbell that might not correspond to Disney, for example. 
and I love these archetypes types for, because for me the symbol these symbols you could say um, help me to connect with these different facets of compassion. So they help us develop them within ourselves and strengthen them within ourselves. So through the symbols we can get a deeper feel for compassion. We receive these qualities so that we can know our own potential. And as we're familiarizing ourselves deeply with these qualities, we hit the limitations, our edges, of where we're willing to let the ice mountains melt, where we're willing to soften condition, beliefs, or fear. So Mary, so the perspective of Mary with compassion, to me, she represents the warmth of compassion, the warmth, like the warmth of a, of a mother for a child. So with this aspect of compassion, there's a kind of softness and a deep kindness. And there's this um, universal acceptance, unconditional acceptance. I have a statue of Mary in my garden, and her, her arms are like this. And that's that gesture, right, of including and holding all, welcoming all. So with Mary, we can think of the quality of um, including and welcoming all suffering with warmth. So how do we let that quality in to discover it through our whole being? Sometimes for me, I use the image of warm honey being poured over my head and down into just warm honey. What helps you to access that kind of warmth within? They have a different, might be more maple syrup. <laughs> might be something else. <laughs> the Buddha, uh, I heard he used at times the image of a, of a cow with her calf, cleaning her calf and taking care of her calf. The Zen priest, um, Zenju Earthland Manuel, in the book she wrote called The Way of Tenderness. She says, the way of tenderness is acknowledgement, acknowledging and honoring all life and all that is in the world fully with heart and body. This acknowledgement is wordless and expressed in a deeply felt nod to everything and everyone, an inner bow to life, so to speak. It is a response beyond the mind, but of the body. So this kind of warmth can begin to melt the hard edges in our hearts and our minds, smooth out the rough edges. As Anam Thubtin said, melt the ice mountains.
So melting the ice, softening the edges. We actually have some hesitation about this. There's a certain vulnerability as we soften. And we're not always sure that it's a good idea. Sometimes I allow for that hardness to also be there. So sometimes we have the idea, oh, I should be open, I should be open, I should be open. But actually opening and closing, opening and closing is the rhythm of the heart. So sometimes it closes and we can also allow that and be with that with kindness. And acknowledge our deep ambivalence. Don't try to overrun it. Sometimes I have conversations with the hardness. I'll be maybe trying to encourage my heart to open and, and, and the hardness won't be very interested in it. And I'll say, well, what's going on? And the hardness will be, well, well, well like, why would I want to open? I'm protecting you. It's safe in here. And, and then maybe some wisdom part answers because it's also lonely. It's alienating living behind the hardness. And so we have this dance in our own hearts, opening, hesitating, risking, protecting. And so as we're receiving this warmth of Mary, or if that image doesn't work for you. you. You may have another one that's better for you with warmth. I'm, I'm aware that that's a Christian image and not everybody's Christian. I'm not Christian. <laughs> I'm Buddhist. <laughs> but I still relate to the image. <laughs> um, so we're letting that in. We will, we, can, we will sometimes come up to the places of hardness. Like the, uh, Another place will be... Um, One is wishing to be invulnerable, right? That's what I was just talking about. Another one is wishing um, or finding the the sense of unworthiness. It's like somehow we may believe that we're really not worthy of love and warmth. That we're really flawed enough (laughs) that, that, that we don't deserve it. So we may come up against that place and just let the warmth touch it, touch it, touch it. Sometimes I think of this warmth as having the quality of mercy. It's not a very Buddhist word, <laughs> but I, I love that word mercy because there's a sense of unconditional forgiveness. There's a sense of forgiveness whether it's deserved or not. It doesn't matter. It's like a gift, a gift of forgiveness for being human, which involves quite a lot of mistakes, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Lynn Jensen, this uh, uh, teacher from Oregon that I like a lot, a um, Zen teacher, he said, I'm a partner now in the brotherhood and sisterhood of inevitable error and recovery. Our human lives are 10,000 beautiful mistakes. That has a lot of mercy in it.
So one um, book that I, I've really liked uh, about compassion is called Tattoos on the Heart by Greg, Gregory Boyle. He's a, um, a priest of some kind. <laughs> I think Catholic, Catholic priest uh, who uh, works in, in Los Angeles. Um, works with gangs and, and uh, ex-gang members and has started a number of businesses so that they have uh, alternative employment possibilities. He's, he's well-loved, and he's um, one of the beauties of reading what he writes is there's no sense of like the white gringo going into the barrio to help the poor Latinos. It's, 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 it, he, he, there's so much equality. For, he, there's no separation. There's no him above them. There, there, there's, it's all about connection, all about community. It's very beautiful. So there's one story about some time that he um, was giving a talk in um, South America. I, I think it was Bolivia. And... Um, Somehow he decided that it, it wasn't giving a talk. He was giving a mass. We give talks, they give masses. So he, he, he was giving a mass. He'd been invited up this mountain to give a mass at a place where um, they hadn't had a priest for many, many years, and they were really happy that he came. But he felt like his mass was a disaster. And this is what happened. Oh, and all his friends left and went down the hill before him, so he had to walk down by himself. He said, I am alone at the top of this mountain, stuck, not only without a ride, but in stultifying humiliation. I am convinced that a worst priest has never visited this place or walked to this earth. Some of you might be be able to relate to sometimes having a feeling like that. And he says, with my backpack snug on my shoulder and spirit deflated, I begin to make the long walk down the mountain and back to town. But before I leave the makeshift soccer field that had been our cathedral, an old Quechua campesino, seemingly out of nowhere, makes his way to me. He appears ancient, but I suspect his body has been weathered by work and the burden of an Indian's life. As he nears me, I see he is wearing tethered wool pants with a white button shirt, greatly frayed at the collar. He has a rope for a belt. His suit coat is coarse and worn. He is wearing urachis, and his feet are caked with Bolivian mud. Any place that a human face can have wrinkles and creases, he has them. He is at least a foot shorter than I am, and he stands right in front of me and says, Tatai. This is a Quechua word for padrecito, a word packed with cariño, affection, and a charming intimacy. He looks up, me, up at me with penetrating, weary eyes and says, Tatai, gracias por haber venido. Thanks for coming, or having come. I think of something to say, but nothing comes to me which is just as well because before I can speak, the old campesino reaches into the pockets of his suit coat and retrieves two fistfuls of multicolored rose petals. He's on the tips of his toes and gestures that I might assist with the inclination of my head. And so he drops the petals over my head, and I'm without words. He digs into his pocket again and manages two more fistfuls of petals. He does this again and again, and the store of red, pink, and yellow rose petals seems infinite. 
I just stand there and let him do this, staring at my own urachis, now moistened with my tears, covered with rose petals. Finally, he takes his leave, and I'm left there alone with only the bright aroma of roses. For all the many times I would return to Tirani and see the same villagers over and over, I never saw this old campesino again. Okay, warm honey, rose petals, take your pick. (laughs) So we've been talking some about the, the aspect of compassion of Mary, a kind of warmth and softness. Let's balance this vulnerability with the power of compassion. So we may have an unconscious belief that compassion is just a little bit on the wimpy side. But compassion is actually a very strong and empowered mind and heart. So I represent this by Tara, one of the Tibetan bodhisattvas. <laughs> a Tara who can stream out compassion in a, in a, in a strong, um, steady stream and the power of it spreads wide and far and is stronger than any obstacle. So we understand compassion as a powerful and an empowered state of mind and heart that can meet any suffering and not be crushed by it. How do we feel that for ourselves? How do we remind ourselves that we have that power of compassion. Sometimes we really need to call that one forth when what we meet is very difficult. When I was writing this talk a while ago, I flashed on this image that I think represents the power of Tara. And it was this image that went around the internet a while ago Some of you might recognize it. And it's from a Black Lives Matter demonstration. And it pictures this young African-American woman standing up to riot police in Baton Rouge. And she has this incredible presence. She has this um, flowing dress and um, just very dignified, extremely rooted presence. And so there's, there's her, and then there's this kind of semicircle of riot police right in front of her, uh, two or three, two feet away maybe, not that far away. But, but you can feel like they can't come any closer. <laughs> you can see around her this like aura of power and, or protection or energy because that, that they, they're all like this. It's really quite um, uh, striking. And I was thinking, like, where, what's this power that she's manifesting? It's stronger than anger. It's not anger. Though anger and compassion can be sometimes close neighbors. But I felt like it was compassion, this, the strength of Tara. So without this power of compassion, we can more easily fall into the Um, conditioned responses I mentioned earlier, conditioned responses of pity, separating ourselves from others, or um, despair, aversion, 
These are all, you can feel these actually, they're forms of collapsing of our energy. Pity, despair, overwhelm, aversion. And with the strength of Tara and the power of Tara, it's coming out of collapse, you could say. We come out of collapse. So when compassion is connected with the power of our hearts, we can feel this strength and this energy and the resiliency there. We can deal with what is difficult. And I think that we are stronger than we usually assume, that we hold more than we can assume. And one of the beauties of a meditation retreat is we actually get to see how much we can hold. And we, and, we, and we build that strength of, you could say, the power of, of Tara through that. Each time that we meet something difficult and we're able to be with it and um, work with it, or even each time we meet something difficult and we skillfully move away. Those are both powerful responses that teach us our own strength. You could say that this power of Tara, represented by Tara, um, widens and enlarges our heart, our heart space, our mind space. And a larger heart and mind is able to hold more. And there's this metaphor sometimes used in the teachings of, let's say you have a gallon of water and you pour in a cup of salt. The water's going to be very... Salty. (laughs) Let's say you have a lake and you pour in a cup of salt. It's going to be fine. So the larger our hearts are, you could say, the more they can um, hold a lot of pain without becoming salty, bitter. So when we can... um, connect with the power of compassion and we can meet suffering without being crushed by it, then it's easier to manifest at the third phase, Kuan Yin. So many of you have uh, seen images of Kuan Yin. We have one out there and one here in the back of the hall. And um, uh, Sometimes... Uh, She's expressed with having many arms and, um, and hands to help. Not, not the images we have here. There's many different I- images. She, uh, or they, you could say they have uh, shape-shifted many times. Used to be um, masculine, now um, often represented uh, feminine. Some, some people say the first transgender bodhisattva. Um, 
So part of the power of compassion is the um, wish for others to be free of suffering and uh, action to alleviate suffering. So sometimes we think of compassion just as a feeling, but there's a component of response, of action, that comes with compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh says compassion is a verb. I read of a sign in a nurse's station. It said, sympathy sees and says, I'm sorry. Compassion feels and whispers, I'll help. So it's not just a nice feeling. It's actually a call to respond. And without response, without action, compassion can feel disempowering. Things continue as they have been. But when we respond, even if our actions don't have necessarily the result that we wish and want, we can feel the power of responding. Action counteracts the tendency to crumble in the face of suffering. And the beauty of compassionate action is that it takes us out of our small world, our contracted world. It relaxes the contraction around our own wants and needs and focuses on Um, the world around us. And that's a relief. That relieves the claustrophobia of being entrapped in our own wants and desires. Once somebody asked... um, It was a Zen master again. I'm going on the Zen today, aren't I? Um, I can't remember his name, but somebody asked him, is Kuan Yin real? And he answered, to see her, all you have to do is perform a selfless deed. Here's another story from Tattoos on the Heart. So as I mentioned, this priest, uh, Gregory Boyle, has different um, industries. And he just has a couple of rules. um, And one of his rules is you have to get along with everybody when you work someplace, whether they're uh, from an enemy gang or whatever, you, you have to get along. Otherwise, you can't work there. So one day he's introducing a new um, employee, clever Clever seems eager to begin at homeboy silkscreen, and at 22 years old, he has assured me he is ready to retire his jersey from the barrio. He moves with me easily through the factory, shaking hands cheerfully with those printing shirts or catching them as they spit through the conveyor belt dryer. Even enemies, he greets and looks them in the eye. Until he turns a corner and sees travieso. Travieso means mischievous. Travieso, a 24-year-old from an enemy hood. In unison, they stare instantly at their feet. Some mumbling takes place, and there is a great mutual shifting of body weight. They do not shake hands. I think, 
Hell, he's just finished shaking hands with all sorts of enemies. I discover sometime later that the hatred they hold for each other is profundo. Not only is this a neighborhood pedo, this is also personal. Some delito has transpired between them and the breach is beyond repair. I can sense this much in the moment even before the details get filled in later. Their eyes are still epoxied to their Nike Cortezes. Look, I tell them, if you can't hang working together, please let me know now. I got a grip of homies who would love to have this holly. They say nothing, so that's that. Some six months later, Travieso finds himself surrounded in an alley, greatly outnumbered by the members of an enemy gang who beat him badly. And he gives further description, which I won't read because you're on retreat. <laughs> but basically, he winds up in the hospital on um, life support. The doctors wait for 48 hours to secure a flat read, and then they can officially declare him deceased. This allows times for relatives to journey to Los Angeles. I am speaking at St. Louis University and fly home. I have seen a great deal of horrifying things in my lifetime. Nothing, however, compares to the sight of this kid, a wonderfully gentle-souled kid. It's breathtaking. I can barely keep my eyes trained on him as I smear sacred oil on his forehead and we say goodbye in the pull of a plug. In those first 24 hours after his death, I am in my office late at night and the phone rings. It's clever. Hey, he begins awkwardly, that's messed up about what happened to Trayeso. Yeah, it is, I say to him, brought back to the hollow area of my soul which this sadness has carved. Is there anything I can do, Clever asks with oddly high energy. Can I give him my blood? This last offer sucks the breathable air out of the atmosphere for both of us. We can each feel the other tremble in silence. Clever takes the lead and punctuates the quiet with great resolve and unprotected tears. He was not my enemy. He was my friend. We, we work together. There's Kuan Yin. <laughs> Last but not least, Tinkerbell. Eowyn came to the talk to hear about Tinkerbell, she told me. <laughs> so, um, First, I will clarify that I'm thinking of Tinkerbell from more the, from the early Peter Pan movies, like from 1966 or so. <laughs> I don't know what Disney's done to Tinkerbell, but <laughs> I, I, I'm a little, it's probably worrisome. <laughs> and then I also found out that, that the Tinkerbell from the Peter Pan movies had her neuroses too, so I might have a um, selective memory of her. Turns out she is quite controversial. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of you are wondering what Tinkerbell has to do with compassion. <laughs> you see a couple nods out there. <laughs> I had my doubts about mentioning her. Um, I was telling um, Bruni about this talk. I don't know, it was a while ago, and I said, wow, you know, I don't know if I should mention Tinkerbell. And Bruni's like, Rebecca, you have to leave in Tinkerbell. <laughs> and um, she's turned out to be rather popular. I didn't go looking for her, so it, what happened is one time I was um, doing this kind of meditation that uh, 
Sultrim Alioni teaches. She's a Tibetan um, nun, a, a Western Tibetan nun. And it's called Feeding Your Demons. And what you do is you imagine in front of yourself um, aspects, most wounded aspects of yourself, and you, you feed them nectar and all. You feed them and feed them. And um, then at the end, you ask for an ally. So when I did this, um, she appeared as an ally. And I was like, um, can I have somebody else? <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, I'm trying to do serious, you know, meditative work here. And, um, but I didn't get a second choice. So, and um, I really, over time, got, have really grown to understand the power of this archetype. To me, Tinkerbell is spunky. And we need a lot of spunk in order to be compassionate. I recently read a book um, about Desmond Tutu and um, the Dalai Lama. It's some book about joy. And the two of them are two of the kind of two very well-known living examples of compassion, right? And the book is just, um, you can just feel the spunk pouring out of both of them. They are spunky dudes. And you know that it has something to do with their ability to be compassionate. They're related. <laughs> so, so Tinkerbell reminds me of Spunk. She reminds me not to take myself too seriously. If we get too serious, we get bogged down. It's helpful to know that whatever challenge we face right now or whatever challenge the world faces right now, there's a bigger picture. Tinkerbell brings in the magic and the wide open space of possibility. The wisdom of not knowing that we never know what is going to happen. So there's a certain lightness there. She brings in lightness. Spunk, sassiness, mystery, possibility. So you could say that she's a part of compassion that we can call equanimity that rests in the unknown. I mean, that's truly amazing. We really don't know what's going to happen. We think we know what's going to happen, but we really don't. A few um, weeks ago, for example, there was this amazing, you could say, surprise when the teenagers in this country led the movement for gun control. I mean, who would have thought a bunch of teenagers could get gun control on the agenda? Who would have thought a bunch of teenagers could get politicians to have to answer to where they get money from? Now, I know it's kind of complicated because the Black Lives Matter movement has been talking about gun control for a long time, so I know this is all very complicated and that the most recent group, yes, m- um, many of them are white and 
have um, privilege and that helps get the attention. But who would have thought that could have happened? It was amazing. Or who would have thought that one of the proud leaders would be um, a young woman, bisexual, proudly bisexual, of Cuban descent with a shaped head? <laughs> it would become a national hero. <laughs> Beautiful. Wow, we never know what's going to happen. Surprise. So Tinkerbell brings in balance. Absolutely essential for not getting overwhelmed by suffering because there's, a not, there's plenty of it around. Only sitting with ourselves, there's so much, right, that we hold each of us as human beings. And then... Our world today, (laughs) plenty of suffering. So Tinkerbell's that lightness, and it's a lightness and spaciousness that by itself might seem a little bit frivolous, superficial, ungrounded, but when combined with the other three facets of compassion, when combined with the warmth and the power and the action, it's a great strength. Tinkerbell's a great strength. So sometimes when I'm too serious and and leaning uh, towards uh, getting trapped in in contraction around suffering, Tinkerbell comes along and says, lighten up, lighten up. So at different times we may feel the need to call upon different aspects of compassion. So these archetypes are one way to do it. So at times we may need the warmth of Mary to soften our hearts, to absorb that energy in ourselves. So we might need to call on the warm honey or the rose petals a deep sense of mercy. Other times we might need the power of Tara that reminds us of our own strength in the face of suffering. The heart that can radiate care that is not crushed by the depth and breadth of suffering that we meet. So we may call on that quality Or at times we may call on the quality of Kuan Yin, the the response. The reminder that we can act so that we don't get caught in apathy or cynicism. Or sometimes we might need to call upon Tinkerbell to touch us with the sense of magic, lightness, and spunk. So we have, with compassion, this softening of the heart in the face of suffering, this capacity to stay connected in the face of suffering. 
and the strength of this compassion that makes it possible to open. And we acclimate to openness of heart. We can't hurry the heart. It has its own timing. The last thing the heart likes is you telling it what to do. It does not like being bossed around. (laughs) We more listen to our own hearts. That's a compassionate way. As we listen to our own hearts, we respect the pace and timing of opening. We respect the need for protection. And with curiosity, we explore the limits. We explore where there is a leaning towards some um, melting of the limits. Exploring this all with tremendous curiosity and patience. And then our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. So I have time, I think, for a story sometimes that I like to share about the power of love and compassion. This story is from a book called Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone. So it was a book written maybe 50 years ago. J. Allen Boone eh, had very close relationships with uh, animal beings. The last chapter of the book is about his friendship with a fly named Freddie. Quite touching. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> he could call Freddie and Freddie would come to him. <laughs> so the story is about a woman named Grace Wiley. And um, apparently in the, in the 1940s, this is a true story, she had a, um, a zoo or for, for snakes that nobody wanted. It was called the Zoo for Happiness. And um, so when people didn't want a snake, <laughs> they would bring them to the zoo. I guess snakes they caught, or just snakes, some of the world's, most um, snakes with the worst reputations. So she got them. And she loved them. The meaner they were, the happier she was. And um, she had this room called the taming room, or the gentling room. It was called the gentling room. And when a snake was brought to her zoo, she would gentle them, and people could watch her do this. So this is how she would do it. says, one sees Miss Wiley quietly enter the room, take a position just off the far end of the table and become motionless as the table itself. And she has a couple of padded sticks, one to um, pet the snake and the other one to defend herself if she needs to because these are venomous snakes. A large box with warning signs all over it is wheeled into the room and placed on the table. At a nod from Miss Wiley, the rear end of the box is elevated, the front part jerked off, and out into the new world of experience slides Mr. Snake. And uh, what a snake he is. 
over six feet in length, beautifully designed, filled with tremendous energy. As the snake hits the table, there's a flash of movement almost too fast for the eyes to follow, the swift coiling of its body into a defense or attack position. The big fella from Texas is set to fight anything or anyone for survival. But to his obvious astonishment and bewilderment, there is nothing to fight. There's no moving target to strike, only the bare walls and the motionless woman facing him. The snake heads darts apprehensively in all directions, trying to discover from which direction trouble is going to come. But nothing happens, nothing at all. So what is Miss Wiley doing? That's the question. Why does, what is she doing? So it says, The truth is that Miss Wiley has been doing a most important something to the big snake ever since it came sliding out of the box, but you could not tell she was doing it because it was entirely mental. What was really happening was not just the outward meeting of a woman and a snake. Rather, it was exploratory coming together for the first time of two invisible individualities, of two puzzled and wondering kinsfolk who are about to discover that they are related in the great plan and purpose of life. From the moment that Miss Wiley first saw the big snake, she had been silently talking across to it. Outwardly, she appeared to be doing nothing at all. Actually, she was proving the potency and effectiveness of her favorite rule of action in all relationship contracts, that all life, regardless of its form, classification, or reputation, will respond to genuine interest, respect, appreciation, admiration, affection, gentleness, courtesy, and good manners. The big tail rattler was being lovingly showered with these qualities, undoubtedly for the first time in its experience. You will recognize metta, all metta and compassion. Had your ears been attuned to the silent universal language of the heart, you would have heard in detail the flow of soundless good talk that was moving from Miss Wiley to the stake, not down at it as a lower form of life, but across to it as a fellow expression of life. And in that good talk, among other things, you would have heard her praising the snake for its many excellent qualities, assuring it it had absolutely nothing to fear and reminding it again and again that it had simply come to a new home where it would be appreciated, loved, and cared for. After a while, you notice a marked change in the snake's attitude. The fast rattling of its tail was slowing down, and its head... uh, Anyway, the the guy seems to, um, I want to just move on, seems to be responding. And it said, you would see the big snake slowly uncoil and cautiously stretch itself the full length of the table, finally resting its head within inches of where Miss Wiley was standing. And the first physical movement by Miss Wiley as she reached across and gently stroking the snake's back in the beginning with the soft-petted petting stick and then there being no resistance with her two bare hands. And as you watched this most unbelievable performance, you would have seen the snake arch its long back and cat-like undulations in order better to feel the affection-filled ministrations. (laughs) It's a true story. The power of metta. So maybe all the difficult places within us that seem scary and challenging and 
very unpleasant, <laughs> attacking, <laughs> maybe we can um, tame those places with the power of metta and the power of compassion, with respect, gentleness, appreciation, and kindness. Let's sit for a minute. So keeping anything that may be of use from the talk and letting the rest float away, the words float away. As we sit here, embodied, alert, present, kind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.